Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to WebRush. This is episode 133, and today's topic is how to design CSS for design and performance. And our guest today is going to be Nicole Oliver. But before we get to the topic today, today I have my co-hosts on of Dan Walleen and Ward Bell. How are you both doing? Battleship Gray, John. What? Battleship Gray. What does that even mean? Yeah. That, that's what you do for design, isn't it? You just Everything's just Battleship Gray. Like the old VB3 days? Yeah. No, let's not do that. Obviously, I'm joking, <laughs> but anyway. Hey, I, I had a lot of fun to in hear VB3. what Nicole has to say. No, no you know yeah. what, Dan? You're right. There, those were the, the great days where when you could have any color you want as long as it was green on black. You know, that was kind of, <laughs> that, was, that was it. It was simple. You had one character set. There was no bold or anything. Uh, it, it, if you go back far enough, it was all caps. It just made design super simple. You know, back in the Hollerith card days, John. <laughs> right. I remember working on a VAX system. Yes. And I remember when we went from, it's been a long time, so we went from, I think, black screens with green text, and then we were able to change it to blue with white text. And it was like a Ooh. big deal. I'm like, wow, I've got 16 <laughs> colors I can choose from now. Look and you were vaccinated, this. I think, John. You were vaccinated. <clears throat> and I was vaccinated back then, too? Yes, that's what you were. Oh, okay. I don't know what that means. You know, V-A-X-inated. <laughs> All right, oh, vaccinated. I Jeez, got you. That was a joke? Today. That was a joke. That was a joke. I, I did get it, Ward. I, I should have Thank you, Dan. Sorry. My bad. Oh, my Lord. Well, I'm so glad we have somebody on today who can tell jokes because that's obviously not me. But uh, let's get right to the topic and to our guest today. A return guest, I think a multi-return guest for us, uh, Nicole Oliver. How you doing, Nicole? She shows no good sense at all coming back on the show. <laughs> I'm very happy to be back. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my. I think you were on in one of the earliest episodes, too, where we talked about TypeScript. Yeah, um, we talked gosh. about TypeScript decorators. We'll have, to, we'll have to drop that link into the show notes uh, as well. Uh, decorators. So let's start off. Do you still use TypeScript decorators? Yeah. we. I mean, we use them a lot in Angular, and I'm I'm still working pretty heavily in Angular. So definitely do. Um, I get a lot of questions about them um, still, and I, I haven't been working on them uh, actively lately, so a lot of them I can't answer anymore. It's kind of one of the funny things about, about giving talks is that you, uh, you become kind of like a magnet for a lot of questions. And if you're not still working in it, <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a interesting experience. Have you noticed that the like syntax just disappears after a few hours of lack yeah. of use? Yeah. I, 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 the other day I was wondering what the heck I did wrong. And I had the at symbol in there and it was complaining at me at, at NGF. What's wrong with that? You know, <laughs> it was yeah. asterisk. Oh, I've only been working in that space for like 10 years. But, <laughs> yeah. You know how many times I type ng if with a dash and sometimes without the dash as well when I'm an angular? I know. It's just like, I can't remember. AngularJS was a dash, right, John? Right. Well, yeah, one was dash, one wasn't. Well, and now I can't remember dash. anything. View has a dash in it. I mean, you know, you hop around from one of these. Uh, and, and Nicole, I imagine you're going, you know, you're doing a lot of React work too. Is it possible? I'm not. Know, oh, well, because a lot of narwhal people are. And so jumping back and forth is... Yeah, I did pick up. Um, I did pick up like a tutorial, um, the like Epic um, Epic React uh, with Kenzie Dodds, and um, and I have been kind of blown away by the by the 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 way that my mind has reset. <laughs> I'm going back to basics. <laughs> well, you know, talking about TypeScript decorators was the first episode. I just went back and looked. It was episode 27. And speaking of decorating, today's talk is all about how you can decorate your app with. CSS. Well, that was a bad lead-in, but... Uh, Different kind of decorating. <laughs> it really is. I mean, so for years, to kind of lay this up for folks, for years, we we kind of neglected, I'm going to say, CSS uh, as an industry and or maybe even minimized the importance of it. Uh, and there's a lot of things that you, you can do and that are really important to apps uh, that are 
I think, can hang on an edge of a precipice with how well your CSS is designed for both the usability and for performance for the application. And you're here to talk to us about those topics today, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In particular, I, um, I wanted to talk about like the experience that I had um, over the last couple of years where um, I was working with a, a larger company and we were supporting multiple brands with a single design system. And, um, you know, it brought up a lot of really interesting challenges that um, I had seen sort of on a small scale in projects that I'd worked on before, um, but I had never sort of pushed them to the edge and seen uh, kind of what what happens at scale. Um, and that was really interesting for me. I mean, performance becomes a big concern, which generally in the CSS world, we're not really thinking about performance quite as much because you can't really do a lot with CSS to make it more performant, except keeping those bundle sizes down, right? Yeah, I was going to say, what does performance mean except, uh, you know, not shipping five megs of CSS? Right, exactly. What, 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 what do you mean then when you say that it can be a concern? I mean, that is basically what I'm talking about. Like, you really have to be careful about um, if you're using a tool like SAS. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that when you're using an import in SAS, you are pulling in an entire partial or maybe even like a whole library of code instead of just including it like you would in um, in JavaScript. It's just like making a, a link or a reference to some file over there. Like, you're actually pulling it in, you might be pulling it in many, many times. Um, so those are things that you have to be careful about and uh, look at your bundle sizes and see like, you know, it, are, am I pulling in a lot more code than I, than I intend to? And where is that coming from? Hey, are you building apps in React, Angular, Node, or some other framework? Well, with NX, you can build your full stack apps in a shared mono repo, integrate with modern tools and reinforce best practices. You'll get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier that will simplify your workflow. NX also helps you simplify the relationships between applications and shared libraries to make it easier to share more code and develop more consistently across teams. And the best part is you'll build higher quality apps and spend less time on configuration. So visit nx.dev to get Narwhal's popular open source toolkit for monorepo development today. So how, why? Like, let me start there. When I develop an application or our listeners are developing an app, why do we have to care about what's in our CSS? I mean, I have a business requirement to design the site. I design it the way that the users expect it. Hopefully that's step one. <laughs> and, and then it, it works. It looks right. It feels right. It does. It behaves right. Why do I have to care about how small it is? Well, certainly, I mean, we. I think we've uh, kind of gotten to a point where a lot of people are, they have really high speed internet connections. Um, and so you might not be thinking so much about bundle sizes as you were in like the early days of the web. Um, but it's still really important because a lot of people look at, at content on their phones. Um, a lot of people just don't have high speed internet. Um, so it's, and, and there's just certain situations where your internet just gets slow. <laughs> I have that all the time. Like sometimes, you know, I'm doing a big download or my partner's doing a big download and, um, you know, things just slow down and it's frustrating. Um, so you want to create like a good experience. Um, it has a really big business impact as well. Like if you're working on a commercial site or something like that, like just milliseconds will make a difference. Um, they, they have a number of studies that have that have come out about like, how many people will leave your site after just a couple seconds or, or even less. Um, so it's especially seen that with uh, e-commerce. I know it's very critical, you know, yep. to get that super fast paint time and get them engaged. Absolutely. I think it's also important for developer experience as well. Um, I mean, if you have, uh, if you have a library being included many times um, and you go into Chrome dev tools or whatever you're using to inspect, um, you're going to see a lot of confusing code in there. Like, why is why are there so many rule sets? Um, why do things look this way? Uh, it's just going to be a much worse developer experience for, for you and your team. I was a bit remiss, Nicole, because I didn't introduce you to our audience at the beginning of the show. And that's probably because we know you so well and you've been on the show now. I think you're the first time we've had somebody as a guest three times. So Hooray. there must be an award <laughs> or like... Uh, 
was that gold level service uh, once you come somewhere three times? I don't know. Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> it's really fun to talk to you all. But let's make sure the, the audience all is familiar with as well. So I just dropped a couple of links into Nicole's prior appearances on WebRush, actually back when we were called Real Talk JavaScript as well. Uh, but Nicole is a senior Angular engineer at Narwhal and an NX Cloud team member. She's a background in illustration and design, thus the topics today, and approaches engineering challenges with a UX and design lens. She also recently learned how to solve a Rubik's Cube, which I'm completely jealous about. This so. was one of my like life goals, even though like I, I made a, a bucket list at the beginning of the year. And I was like, I really want to learn how to solve a Rubik's Cube, however arbitrary that skill set is. <laughs> um, and I finally did it. I thought I would be smarter afterward, but I found out that it's really just a bunch of like rote memorization. <laughs> so I don't I don't really feel that much smarter. <laughs> You've seen the kids do it in thir- the ones who can do it in 13 seconds. I know. <laughs> One day. Humiliating. <laughs> e- except they can't talk. So I figure, you know, <laughs> they just sit there and. Well, and a small disclaimer today, too, that uh, Narwhal, one of our continual sponsors, we really appreciate. Uh, they're, they're your employer, too, as well, yes. right, Nicole? Yes, yeah. they are. Yep. This is actually my, uh, my two year uh, Narwhal anniversary. My, my work anniversary. Um, so I've, I've been really enjoying Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I love working at Narwhal. It's a, it's a bunch of really, really smart, um, like just good people. And we solve a lot of really interesting problems. Yeah, it seems like a lot of folks have come in and out of the Narwhal uh, company. And right now we're recording on April 1st, so April Fool's Day. Yes. Uh, and I'm not believing anything on the internet today. That's how we actually <laughs> just started talking before the show. <laughs> Ward was already roped into something uh, about real estate, which was fascinating. But the other thing I've been noticing is that it seems like lately, the last couple of weeks, it's like musical chairs in the technology industry. Uh, every time I turn on social media or any kind of form of the internet, I'm finding somebody has left a job and gone to a new company uh, these days. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of bittersweet, but I I kind of understand like you know there's a there's a a pull towards like a lot of different experiences in in tech in particular. Um, I think a lot of people want to get experience with a lot of different environments, and um, you know each company has something new to offer. Um, I, in particular, had that um, that trouble in my, not trouble, but like when I started, I, I felt very um, drawn to my first job and I didn't want to leave. And I had a lot of people tell me like, you know, you really want to go out and experience a lot of things early in your career. So you have that experience under your belt and you can kind of use that to propel yourself forward, um, which I don't know. It's, it's just a, everybody has a different approach, right? You know, we had a few guests on the show, and we have a couple more coming up, too, uh, at different stages of their career, talking about how they got into technology and what their career paths are. And I think the one thing everybody has in common is there is no one way to have a career in technology. No, no there's so not. So it's really custom to you. Yeah. So let's get back to the, the topic of CSS and design and theming. Um, when you first approach a project, tell us like some of your experience at Narwhal, without giving the specific details you can't share, of course. How do you first approach a project uh, to gather the design requirements and then also make sure that you're not going to violate some awful performance guideline? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think the first thing that I now look for, like when I am uh, working with a new team, is to look at the team makeup. Um, there is a lot to consider when you uh, go to a new team and um, you're looking at creating a, a design system or a set of styles Um like pulling together libraries that are really going to work for that team. And I think one of the most important factors to take into consideration is like, who are the stakeholders that are going to be looking at whatever you are uh, developing? Because it's not just going to be the developers. Um, You also need to consider like, does this team have designers? Um, Does this team have business people who are very uh, involved in like what the design and the content and the copy is going to look like? Um, for me, I think that that has made the biggest difference in, uh, in development of styles and, um, understanding what, uh, like what the shape of that project looks like. Um, I, when I started working on applications, I was working on a team that didn't have any designers. Um, and so coming from sort of a design background, I was doing a lot of that design myself and I really loved doing it. Um, but I was doing it at a small scale, right? Like you're not, 
you're not doing a lot of, um, you're not doing a lot of like planning beforehand. You're like, for me at least, like I was doing a lot of prototyping and, um, and design in the browser. Um, and, uh, you know, as I started working with larger companies, I found that um, you, you really shut that part of your brain off when you're working with designers because you are offloading a lot of those uh, very, very um, tuned in, like specific requirements to a designer. And they're going to think about, say, how large the typeface is and whether that works with like the specific the particular value of uh, the color shade that they've picked. And if not, they have to like make it a little darker for accessibility. There's a lot of really tiny, minute decisions that need to be made there that you just don't have to think about a lot as a, a developer if you if you have a comp that's kind of ready to go. Um, I think when you're in that kind of, of a position, you are really focusing a lot more on the implementation um, the libraries that are involved. Um, so I've done a lot of uh, work helping um, helping teams work with like Angular Material or Bootstrap, um, and having that like set of components ready to go. Um, but also like being able to incorporate their own branding um, from a designer who may not necessarily know the restrictions of like what that thing can look like and how it can function. Um, and I've found that like, while working on larger teams, a lot of your job as a developer is communicating those, um, restrictions or constraints to people who might not necessarily, um, have the ability to kind of go in and and see them for themselves. Um, so that would be developers or designers or other stakeholders. You know, I was going to ask on that, Nicole, because I, problem we've always had, and I don't think it's unique to my projects over the years. What Do you have a particular workflow you recommend there? I mean, one answer is I just send emails back and forth, like, nope, don't do this, don't do this. But is there any tools you use as you're working with these designers, or is it uh, just meet a lot, or you know, any guidance there? Um, I don't think that historically a lot of the tooling has been very uh, easy to communicate, um, I also, I mean, I, I usually like try and hop in a meeting and kind of show them like, you know, there, these are, it depends on the requirement that I'm, or the constraint that I'm trying to communicate. Um, but I usually try like a few different ways to kind of communicate whatever it is. Like if we're talking about, um, say we have like a carousel and, um, it comes like wrapped up in this particular component library and um, a designer likes most of it, but wants to add like swipe functionality or um, change the navigation around a little bit. I think some of those things you can kind of, um, you can kind of demonstrate the, the, like if you just throw a prototype together and kind of say like, Hey, you know, this is, this is where we're going to run into problems. Um, I think most designers will kind of respond to that and say like, okay, we're going to like work with you. Um, to, to find a, a different solution. Um, when it comes to like tooling, I have really thought that like, I haven't experimented with it a lot myself, but I know that like design tokens are a new thing on the scene um, that are really helpful. So design tokens um, kind of takes like the concept of like variables, like SAS variables or CSS variables kind of like kicks it up a notch. So um, instead of just having these variables that you can share throughout your application. You know, um, mean, you mean like a semantic color or something like yeah. that? Like yeah. alert. Instead yeah. of just having a variable called alert, you do, what's the token? What does the token do? What is it? The How token, it the token uh, allows you to share it, not just in the web environment, but also in a native environment or take it over into like a product, um, a uh, like a, a uh, an environment where you can create mocks like Figma or um, just like anywhere that a designer would be creating kind of mocks for your or or like a design system or anything like that. It allows them to see those variables, work with them, and uh, those get like directly translated up into like whatever platform that you're using. 
Um, so there's like extensions and tooling that allow you to share them across that entire workflow. And that makes it easier for designers to see like, you know, if I change this one thing, that's how it's going to affect everything over here. Um, and it, I think it helps communicate a lot of those constraints. I mean, I think a lot of it is like being able to make the platforms more similar so that people kind of like are all speaking the same language, right? Do you, do you create, uh, when you're on a project, do you create a, um, a UI book or, so, or something that represents the, in, in a way that somebody can interact and see how it's all put together? The UI standards and the user experience standards, which is the next level up besides the look, um, that, that's, that sort of go to for the team. Do you do that? And what do you do it in? Yeah, I love to do that. I, um, I like to create living style guides. Um, so that was kind of what I did for the, for maybe like three years ago or so. Like I was creating like just another application or a part of your application where you can go and see everything, um, live and have kind of a demo. Um, I think there's a lot of tooling now to help you with that process. So like Storybook is a really great option for, um, you know, all kinds of, like they have it for Vue and Angular and React. And, um, you know, somebody can go in and very easily demo, test all of that um, functionality. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is the best way to, to really verify that things are still working, to see how things are supposed to work. Um, I think it's a great option. Yeah. In fact, I think I know somebody on this podcast who has a talk coming up about Storybook. And I, I think that person might be very happy that he has officially done and recorded that talk. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Since I think they're due today. Is it for <laughs> so, NGCom? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, we did a uh, we've done a couple of shows on Storybook. Uh, we've had some folks on who have used it in workplace, and also we had a couple of the folks who were part of the the core team for Storybook come on and talk about it. I think it's one of those. It's not really new, I wouldn't say anymore, but it's uh, it's something that a lot of folks I don't think are still using. Yeah, like there's there's that cycle right with technology where when concepts become mainstream, it takes a long time. Like the thing could be out for a long time, and then slowly things get picked up. They get talked about and there's like these stages. Uh, and I, I get the feeling that storybook is going to be one of those things that we're going to be talking about for a couple of years and it may not be that product, but it's going to be that, that methodology at least. Yeah. Uh, that's still relatively new out there. Dan, what do you think of storybook? I love storybook. I, I actually do. Um, Nicole, you mentioned what I really like about it. Cause on the angular side, I'm a really big fan. I don't know if you've used it on Nicole, but angular playground. Have you ever mm. played with that by chance? I haven't. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, and to be honest, it does pretty much everything. They do what's called scenario-driven development. But to get back to what John was saying, what I love about Storybook um, is that you've already mentioned it. It's not just Angular, but you can do Vue. Um, you can do Svelte. You can do React. Uh, it's actually built on React. Um, and probably my favorite thing about Storybook, and we've had Michael on the show. Um, we've had a couple of people, I think, on the show. I'm trying to remember, but... They're very, um, I guess, responsive and open on when it comes to issues that people have or questions. And uh, it was kind of refreshing because I had several. We did some stuff at Microsoft with Storybook and ran into some kind of brick walls or steel walls maybe where it's like, ah, I don't think we could do this. And they were very responsive. So, But to circle it back to what we're talking about today, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan exactly for what you said because you, can, you talked about prototypes. And I'll tell you, seeing is believing when it comes to communicating. Um, because if you could show them that carousel you just talked about and have like, here's A, B, C. It's like going to the optometrist, you know, A or B. They're like B, you know, C or D. Can I see it again? And that's how the optometrist would go. So pretty cool stuff. Um, are there any other uh, tools besides that that you've seen people use them though? You mentioned Figma, I know. I know that's popular with designers and things. Yeah, I mean, I was, I, uh, I was just trying to think of like all the um, like mock-up and, and like prototyping software um, that I could think of. And I'm, now I'm kind of drawing a blank, but. Um, do, people, do people still give you uh, those Photoshop comps or is that finally gone? I haven't way? seen one of those in a long time, though occasionally I do still see uh, red lines. Um, 
I think for the most part, people are uh, using like the like something that is going to translate at least loosely. Um, right. Because that was always crazy. They would give you some comp. It looked beautiful. Yeah. But there was no way to render that in HTML. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Got to eyeball it. <laughs> I know several companies still still doing that. <laughs> it's already name, nameless, but uh, yeah, it was always difficult because they're like, it, it, "How hard can it be? Just just make that a little bit wider over here, and it, yeah, I could do it in nice Photoshop." Curve. I, I don't know how to get that curve in there. <laughs> I'll be here all week. Um, so so I want to I want to get you on on a deba- debate that I always get into with John, uh, but it goes back to. Um, some of the performance things that we were talking about uh, also, which is, uh, do you like one master uh, CSS that, um, uh, you know, has everything you want that's sitting there? Or do you like it scattered about throughout the application and little CSS files, some of which belong to a single component that if you then refactor, you've lost track of what CSS goes where and you don't have any way of having standards and, and am I biasing this question in any way? Um, so what's your, what's your thought about that? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on, um, it really depends on like what libraries you're using and what, what um, I mean, like up until a couple of years ago, it was pretty difficult to use something like, like Tailwind or um, something like that in your applications. Um, and so in the Angular world, I'm sorry, in Angular specifically. And so in the Angular world, uh, you had to choose either like the global CSS file or um, breaking everything up into components. And um, I always favored like doing global just because I'm old school. Like, like <laughs> I learned to do it like way, like, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago I started using CSS or Back when longer. we knew how to do things, right? Back <laughs> before everybody came along and messed it all up. Well, the thing is like, I think that, uh, and, and in particular, like my dad taught me how to code. And so listen to um, your dad. That's always <laughs> sound advice. So, so my dad, like was, he was, um, kind of an artist about it. Like he was really into like cr- handcrafting these websites. And, um, part of that is like sort of, uh, like making sure that everything is really kind of like Zen and like fits together in this way that, you know, it, it kind of cascades down and you're not like adding a bunch of like random rules that uh, like a bunch of cruft that like really isn't um, it's not adding anything in particular. Um, it's, it's better to kind of like start with your, your base and like kind of grow on top of it. Um, and I think I actually told this story like last time I was on this podcast, but I'll just recap it quickly. When I when I started working at Narwhal, I noticed that like everybody kept all of their styles and components. Like there was hardly any um, global CSS. And it kind of like surprised me because, you know, I knew everybody at Narwhal is very smart. And so I knew that they had like a, they, you know, this, this was a really legit way of doing things, but I was like completely in the opposite direction. Um, and what I realized is that like the advantage to doing it that way is that you are, uh, you're, you're modularizing it such that like any code that you don't need um, won't get loaded in. Um, but in that way, you're like, you're also trading off like having that, you're going to be repeating a lot of code. Um, so if you have your a really homogenous set of styles throughout your application, I think it makes more sense to do it like global. I usually choose a mix of both. Um, so, so let's get specifics, I guess. And I can never say that word, specifics. Uh, what would you put in a global CSS file? What's a three good examples? So I always do like, uh, if I'm targeting a... Uh, like a native element, like a H1, H2, H3, um, HTML, um, all those things I'm definitely keeping in the global. Um, and I always have a global file that like defines those things so that that piece is consistent throughout the application. It's especially important that you define a uh, base font style for your HTML so that, um, you know, you can use REMs. Um, and that's important because, that allows you to scale up and down uh, for different. If if somebody's like uh, changing the font size, it's going to make everything scale relatively. Um, what about form elements? Where, where would you put like form element uh, CSS for inputs, for example? I put some basic form 
CSS in there, like anything for accessibility too. Like you usually have some accessibility, um, like utilities, like something that is going to make things. How many styles for an input box do you want in your app? (laughs) It depends, right? I mean. You you randomize Ward, you randomize. (laughs) Yeah, it looks like a ransom note when you're done, when you have all these components with their own stuff. You know, it really, it looks like, you know, I've got your kid and I'm not letting him go until. Well, and you're right. You're right. And that gets back to why what you do, Nicole, at least part of your job, it sounds like, is so critical. Because, yeah, when John's doing it this way and Ward's doing it this way and I'm doing it this way, and then you're the one that actually knows how to do it, and you're going, what the heck? Yeah, and you don't necessarily have all that history of, like, why it was done in a particular way. And so I, whenever I see code like that, I'm afraid to touch it. And, um, you know, if you're on a deadline, you're not going to, like, go and reach out to, like, everybody on your team and say, hey, why was it done this way? <laughs> like, you're just going to patch it. <laughs> And, um, yeah, that can create a lot of extra code that's not needed. Um, and do you, are there ways to test CSS? Like, let's say you did touch one of those things that you were unsure about it. Is, is there some way that you recommend to testing to make sure things are still working? Yeah. Um, I mean, there is visual regression testing. I don't have a lot of experience um, with that, but, uh, you know, that is an effective way to visually catch um, when something has really gone wrong. Um, that's not something that has been, I feel like that is a, a um, an area of CSS and styling that really needs a lot of, a, a lot more like solidification before we can um, feel good about, <laughs> I, maybe, maybe the answer is just that I need to actually get really into visual regression testing, but I'm used to doing a lot of spot checking. <laughs> There's a plugin for that for Storybook, which I'm sure, Dan, you, in your what do you get 20 minutes to talk about these things? You've oh yeah. I, I totally cover that. Yeah, Everything. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that stuff's important. Like, so in my, my experience, when I worked at Disney, a, a lot of the, we got back then, this is back in the day uh, for us, we got Photoshop designs as we were talking about, and we would have to make sure things looked the same after every iterative deploy. So we had to build into our CI, some kind of visual regression testing. Cause you can imagine at Disney, the way the site looks and behaves was critically important. Mm, yeah. You know, you couldn't pull off one of Ward's, um, you know, 800 fields on a screen enterprise apps <laughs> for the for the customer who's trying to book a fast pass for a vacation, you know. So, um, but I want to get back to your component suggestion because I, I experienced the same thing you did, Nicole, I think, where I think, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and put a stereotype of developers. Every time we, as a group, hear about a new thing, like when putting styles and components became popular, it was almost like the first time people heard about it, the next thing they did is they spent the entire weekend moving all their CSS to components, which then I was kind of doing the same thing you did. Does it all need to go there? But what, what, happens, what happens in your experience when you are working in components and you start putting styles in there? That makes sense for that particular component because you want that thing to be styled that way. And then you start doing it in others. Like, what is that line for you of saying these styles, which are now in two components, three components, four components, whatever, where's the line? Is the number of components? Is the type of styles? Is it the way the bundles are broken up? How do you decide when to take those things and move them to a global versus leave them in the components? I usually, I mean, I guess it depends on the size of the application that you're working on. Like if you're working on a really large application, you might choose to promote styles to like the feature level um, or or just keep them within a component. Um, but if like in, in smaller applications, I usually say like after, you know, we repeat this style once or twice, um, move it to the global. I mean, it's, it's, worth, it's worth making it um, global, I think, if you're if you're repeating it at all, I, I think that that's very similar to just like coding in JavaScript, TypeScript, um, anything like that. If you're refactoring um, and you're starting to see repeats, you just promote it to uh, a shared space. So, John, one of the things I like about AG Grid, which is a, a data grid component for the kind of complex uh, grid scenarios that we encounter all the time in enterprise apps. 
One of the things I really like about it is that it works for a variety of frameworks, Angular, React, Vue, or, or just vanilla JS. Does that ring a bell for you? Oh, it really does. There's all these different companies that I work with where they have no choice but to use a lot of these different tools because they have different teams working on them. So being able to port their code or share that code and that technical investment they have is really important to them. Yeah, well, it's important to us, uh, ideally, we're a consulting company. And, uh, you know, we never know what our client's going to want to use, Angular, React, Vue, but they're all going to need a grid. And it's great to be able to reach for uh, the one grid that works everywhere, AG Grid. You know, at at any size company, too, because you could have these teams that maybe they only use one framework, but eventually they're going to switch to another one and be able to take that investment again and use it, reuse it is really nice. So if a multi-framework data grid makes sense to you, please go check out AG Grid at ag-grid.com. One of the things I heard, there's an argument, uh, and I think you half alluded to it, is that... um, you could have all these orphan styles that were loading up. They would be part of your 5 million megabytes of CSS. Uh, as if it was really hard to find uh, orphan styles. I, I don't actually find it that hard. You know, if you see dot foo, you know, you use the foo class. It's not that hard to look for, for, you know, if you have some kind of naming scheme, it's not hard to find out if it's being used. So, I just don't get it. I mean, I'm not saying I haven't used component styles. As a matter of fact, I just did. Uh, uh, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm going to push back, Ward. You're telling me that you have no problem finding out which styles in your project are not being used? Uh, if if there's something that I... Yeah, um, uh, <clears throat> check, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I know there's tools. Like, and I'm, The names are yeah. escaping me. There used to be some tools where you could go through and... Uh, through builds and say, find all the CSS is not being referenced um, in a, like a class. But there's the obvious caveats with that too, or sometimes they're not referenced in styles, they're referenced in code as a selector, right? Like a, like with the jQuery days, yeah. right, Dan? <laughs> so what I meant to yeah. say is, is if I see foo sitting in the CSS, I can pretty much find out if anybody's using it. But you're right. If something is just abandoned, uh, you know, there's no way to sweep through on the other hand, if you're creating only a lot of these little crazy files, yeah, you know, the idea is, oh, well, if I don't use the component, I won't need it. Like, how many times in an application do you leave components around that you're not using? I, I, it, yeah. I You know, a library vendor might say, well, somebody might not use it. But as an application developer, I, I don't have a lot of components sitting around. I delete those things as soon as I find them. Yeah. So if let's say you had a component, let's, let's pull that thread a little, Nicole. Let's say you worked on an app with Ward and he left five orphan components in the app because he just wanted to be that way. Uh, he's aware of it, but he didn't tell you. And those components have CSS in them and they're in features that are being used. What happens with that CSS? Like it's a component's never loaded, but it's in a bundle, like in a featured bundle. I, I, mean, I think I'm using those words right, right? What happens? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how finely you are breaking down your modules, your bundles. Um, it's going to get loaded in if you <laughs> if you're if you're loading in that whole bundle, and hopefully there's not a lot of uh, unused code there. Like that is a definitely a good argument for maintaining your components and making sure that you're not pulling in anything that um, that you don't need. But I've seen a lot of people kind of like, especially if you use NX. Um, it's very easy to like kind of break things down very small. And so I see a lot of people really breaking down modules to the component level. Like um, there's a little more setup, but um, the advantage is that you aren't, you avoid that situation. One of the tools that I was just looking for this tool, it's called Purge CSS. Have any of you used that? I'm I'm not familiar with it other than what it does. I did use it on on one project a long time ago. Um, I... I usually use, there's a tool for this in um, Chrome DevTools that allows you to uh, search for unused code, including CSS, and just, um, and strip it out if you, if you need to. So out of convenience, usually that's what I do. Um, I was just going to say, I was just on that page, CSS Purge, but that's not the one I've used. I, I cannot find, I swear it was like Adi Osmani or somebody like that. Maybe he created that one. I don't know had one and we used it, but it, it wasn't as robust when it came to bundles. 
it was useful when you just just had global styles, you know? So I don't know. We'll have to do some more digging. So I keep hearing about this 5 megabyte or 10 megabyte or 15 megabyte CSS thing. And I, I, I somewhere rattling in my brain, I think I ran into somebody who had that. But I certainly never happened on one of my projects. How, how does that, or as far as I know, how, how, do, you, how do you fall into that trap? Uh, how do you just glide into to getting so much CSS that it actually is something that we're worried about? Because I just as soon not worry about this kind of crap if I could, you know, a few orphan classes here and there. Come on, let's let's get on with our lives. So, so how did I get into trouble? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it is just uh, people making mistakes or pulling in libraries, like whole libraries of code where they're just using um, one little piece. Um, and that's a situation where, you know, look, taking a look at your bundle sizes makes a big difference. Um, a lot of it also is like, if you're, if you have a, a, an app that has been around for five or six years, like you have a lot of developers working on it. And I think we kind of touched on it before. It's like, you are going to have some legacy code in there that like maybe somebody has left and you don't know if that's like really still being used. Um, the thing that I always worry about is like, if I'm looking at a class in my CSS somewhere, I and I'm looking at removing it, like what if somebody what if somebody like is building that class name out of like multiple right. <laughs> like I'm always worried that I'm gonna delete it and then it still is being used, but I can't just like search and replace. You or, can't like, search for yeah. it because <laughs> it's dynamically inserted and it's used mm-hmm. programmatically, not for styling purposes. Yeah. That's a very real possibility yeah but if, but usually such a thing doesn't have any css weight anyway so there's no there was those aren't that's not what kills us i think the place that i think i heard about it is where it was one of those applications where they kept loading different component frameworks like oh i got a you know they tried six or seven calendar controls and all those came bundled with their css and then they got some co- some components from this vendor and they got some from that vendor and each of those vendors carries along this huge weight and suddenly, for the cost of some something or other that was probably done six different ways, in it comes. Um, is uh, at least that's the, is, does that make sense as a way in which a way we get into trouble? And in which case, I've already got trouble. I got too many component libraries. Yeah, I mean, I think that that definitely happens at a lot of companies. That you know, you have a lot of different um, pieces of a code base that are being stitched together out of a number of different technologies and. Um, you know, each of that, those technologies uses their own styling library, their own, like maybe even like AngularJS and Angular or React and Angular or just all these things that um, like you have to load in a lot of the, the common library and then um, any extra pieces. It just really adds up. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of a lot of companies and a lot of organizations are uh continually trying to stay current with the technologies. Um, and that, I think that's a, that is a, a valiant effort, um, but there's always going to be something new, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, finding a way to keep some of the oldest stuff um, kind of working on that first, I think is, is an important thing to try and do so that you have like, you know, at least uh, you have, you have two or three technologies that you're using to build your application instead of like, five or six, <laughs> that becomes, um, you know, pretty heavyweight. Nicole, I want to switch gears a little bit to something we've, we've danced around a little bit, and that's, and that's bootstrap, angular material, tailwind, Bulma, all these different kinds of uh, CSS tools that are out there. Uh, do you, first of all, do you, two-part question, do you recommend people start with one of those or, or a different one uh, versus just doing your CSS on your own when you're dealing with enterprise customers or the second part of that is, which one would you choose and what's the pros and cons there? Yeah, um, I think when you're like exploring at the enterprise level, it's really important to understand like what the business requirements are because um, designers have, like if you're working from a base, um, designers can like look at that base and um they may have like small edits that they want to make or large edits that they want to make. And uh, even though some, some of those small edits can be quite difficult to do, um, if, you, 
if they're really important, then you have to kind of consider that like upfront before you adopt the framework or adopt like whatever technology it is. Um, it's, I think it's really important to do due diligence upfront um, and kind of see like, you know, are, are the designs that we have going to fit into uh, the, the set of components that we have uh, avail- made available to us and um, you know, convenience is really important when you're trying to get up and running quickly. Um, those libraries, like, they have a lot of really great niceties, like um, accessibility compliance that uh, I think are really important. And um, you may not have the expertise on your team, you may, but a lot of people don't have access to uh, accessibility coaches and um you know, some things that are really important for developing at that level. Um, so having that up front is, is, is really great. But um, if you have to make a lot of changes, like it is worth kind of looking at the framework that you have and seeing like, for example, Angular Material comes with the CDK and the CDK has all the utilities that underlie the components. Um, and so you can develop your own components out of the CDK and like kind of use a lot of that that underlying framework. Um, and, but, and if you pick one of these frameworks, like Angular Material, just because we mentioned that, you do have to then be prepared for the pro is you get a lot out of the box. The con is then I assume you're getting a lot of CSS baked into your application. Yeah. Whether you're using it or not, right? Yep, yep. And it is possible to kind of like cut some of that out. Um, I think that like in particular Angular Material, um, the way that it's put together is that there's like a base of like unthemed uh, CSS and then there's a theme layer that sits on top. And then if you want to make changes um, that are specific to your application, you put that as a layer on top. Um, And if you have like multiple themes, then you need multiple sets of those. Um, for something like Bootstrap, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that Bulma works the same way, you, like, it's really focused a lot more on modularizing each of those pieces. So you can cut out any CSS that you need, um, but you're not going to get all the functionality um, that, that Angular Material provides specifically for Angular. Hey, Nicole, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. This has been a really good conversation, and I know I've, I've learned a lot, and I hope our audience has as well. As we wrap up, we like to leave our audience with a final thought from all of our hosts and our guests. And this could be on topic or off topic. And today I'd like to start with the man whose head's always in the clouds, Dan Wallin. What's your final thought? Allergies is my final thought, John. Yes, my head is a little in the clouds today with allergies. No. Um, You know, I'm usually uh, a little more prepared for a final thought. I I guess what I'd say is... uh, there's a lot of bundle tools out there for your JavaScript bundles, but there's also a lot of tools out there. Then there's a few in the show notes we've added for your CSS. And if you are having, as we started this off, Nicole, you mentioned uh, performance and, you know, really with CSS, that kind of comes down to the size you're transferring over the wire. So if you haven't checked out some of those tools, check out the show notes. That's going to be my final thought because I've used a few of those and, um, it's one of those things you don't know what you don't know, but as soon as you learn about it, you're like, oh, cool. Like that might actually help me shrink my uh, size a little bit. So check that out for your CSS. That's a great tip. And Ward, what is your final thought for the audience today? Well, I, I think we, um, we ought to get some pleasure out of bad UI design. Uh, I had somebody working for me who I swore put controls on the screen, closed his eyes and threw them. Uh, but, uh, is this like, I had a friend, I I have a friend, but it's really you. Ah, 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 ah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. that Uh, (laughs) but in the show notes, uh, I stumbled into a, a a website that's dedicated to truly inventive, awful and unusable controls. Uh, so, uh, 59 funny worst input fields. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> when you're, when you think you've seen the worst, come check that link out. Well, and just to, just to pile onto that when I'm looking at the title of the link he put in there, and it's not just 59 hilariously infuriating examples. It says of user interface that even Satan himself couldn't come up with. So, uh, <laughs> just the title itself is great clickbait for me to go ahead and read that a little bit later. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, Nicole, what is your final thought for our audience? Mine's going to be out of left field. I, uh, I've been re-watching uh, with my partner like all the Studio Ghibli movies. And um, if you haven't seen them, or even if you have seen them, they're just such a joy to watch. Um, exactly kind of what I needed in this final stretch of the pandemic. <laughs> just, uh, you know, a little bit of joy. So I recommend going and checking those out. Awesome. And my final thought today is going to be a little bit off topic. Uh, I've been doing a lot of um, lifestyle changes in the last year with uh, sleeping, exercise, diet, etc. And one of the things that uh, I've been asked a lot lately and I want to share is what shoes I'm using for running. Now, first thing I'm going to say is when you run or you walk or you do any of these things, the shoes that work for me may not work for you. Everybody's bodies and feet are different, especially like Ward likes to hike. So he may not want lightweight running shoes to go hiking. <laughs> well, and I, and John, I don't want to run around in stilts like you do. I wish I had stilts. If I did <laughs> and I was still this short, that would be a problem. <laughs> uh, he's not fast, but, but he's tall. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's one of those things that is very, uh, it's personal about your feet. And I played soccer for many years, which basically means now that I'm old, that my feet ache all the time. Uh, so I found On Running. It's a Swiss manufacturer. It's got, for me, the greatest combination of both uh, performance for running and comfort, uh, which to me, comfort trumps performance any day of the week with wearing shoes. Uh, but I'll put a link into the show notes what these shoes do. I do not get anything for sharing this in any way, but I have literally tried about 19 to 20 different brands of running shoes. Uh, and this is the one that I settled in on. The second best that I found were... Uh, when I was having a lot of back problems and I was a little heavier and my joints hurt more, I was using the brand called Hoka, H-O-K-A. Uh, and those are really good for me because they're ultra cushioned. Yeah, you feel like you're running on pillows when you're I really there. like that. Yeah. I love feeling bouncy. <laughs> yeah, the Hokas were good, uh, but they were also heavier. They're not good for backpacking, by the way, because uh, they they uh, the granite just tears them up, but they are wonderfully comfortable. Well, I'll leave it at that for folks. I'll put the links into the show notes to these uh, different brands. You can check them out. And uh, if you're getting into the exercise mode like I was, feel free to check them out. Hey, Nicole, thanks for coming on for the trifecta of uh, episodes here with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Oh, it's always great to have you on and, and want to thank our sponsors, Narwhal and AG Grid, for continually supporting our show out there. And thank you, listeners, for listening to our show without the two of you. We wouldn't be here every week. You'll hear from us every week. And next time will be Thursday morning. See you next time.